welcome to Socrates in the City. Uh, it's a joy to see. <clears throat> That's very tepid, I have to say. Uh, you really need to commit. It's like acting. You got to commit and go with it. Um, it, is, uh, it is a joy to see so many of you here tonight. I want to ask you, how many of you uh, are here for the first time. Would you raise your hands? Wow, that's, that's quite a few of you. That's quite a few of you. How many, and be honest, how many of you would you say you're here for the last time, if you had to be perfectly honest? That's right. I know. Oh, you, you're here for the last time. Don't worry about that. Um, let, me, uh, let me also defy convention by wishing you all an extremely Merry Christmas. Um, and, and for those of you who don't celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas nonetheless. Uh, and uh, for those of you who, who hate Christmas, let me just ask you, is, is that nice, really? That's not nice. Um, our special Yuletide Socrates uh, in the city event, of course, uh, tonight we have the honor uh, of, of hearing from Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, now, don't, no, no, don't, uh, it, not, not the Malcolm Gladwell, um, a, um, there's, more than, there's more than one, so don't, uh, don't leap, uh, actually, I'm sorry, my, my staff says that actually it is the Malcolm Gladwell, uh, although the sounds very brash and American, since you're Canadian, I'll say the Malcolm Gladwell, that's a little bit, a little bit more muted, is that okay? It's okay, what can he say? Um, all right, now, uh, before we really begin, I gotta get something off my, my chest. Uh, as I told people that we would be having um, Malcolm Gladwell, people got all excited, and, and I have to say, you know, every made, everybody made such a big deal over him. I, I, you know, I hate to be the skunk at the garden party, but I, I never even heard of this guy <laughs> till about like 12 years ago. So I'm thinking, what's the, what, what's the big deal? He just, um, so I'm thinking like big whoop, I mean, 12 years ago. Uh, no, obviously, uh, we are so thrilled to have uh, the Malcolm Gladwell uh, here tonight. He's, uh, at this point, basically a phenomenon, uh, like Haley, maybe not like Haley's Comet, but, you know, a phenomenon, like, like Bill Haley in the Comet, something like that. Uh, and he's going to rock you around the clock this evening, I believe, if I can go out on a limb. Um, now... He probably wonders why we invited him. He thinks, uh, he doesn't know, by the way, this is a UFO cult, so I figured, why even, <laughs> why even tell him? Um, but, uh, he, you know, maybe he thinks we invited him just because of his fame, and I can say uh, emphatically, no, it's not because of his fame, or maybe uh, because of his wealth now. He sold all of these books, and I can say, no, uh, it's not uh, because of his wealth. Uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, it's a combination of the two. It's the... <laughs> It's the two things together, the wealth and the fame, that really put him over the edge uh, and got the invitation. Uh, actually, before I even go on, I want to talk about the format tonight. Um, I will interview uh, Malcolm for about 45 minutes. Then we'll have time for Q&A, so all of you can ask questions. As we always say, um, we ask that you f put your question in the form of a question. Uh, I mean that literally. Okay. Um, well, anyway, as I was doing a little research on, on Malcolm Gladwell to kind of find out who he is beyond what I would already know, I discovered some interesting things. And I, I realized, to my uh, uh, amazement, uh, that we actually have 
quite a bit in common. It was, it was very surprising to me. Um, for example, we are both uh, 50 uh, this year, uh, and we both look 30. Uh, and that's, you know, we, we take care of ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We it's important to us. Uh, I'm starting to use an astringent now, and uh, th th these things matter, all right? Um, I also discovered, you know, he's half Jamaican and half English, uh, and I am half Greek and half German. So we have that in common as well. Um, he, was, uh, he was born in England, and I majored in English. Um, and since he was born in England, of course, he could never become president of the United States. Uh, and I will never become president of the United States. <clears throat> but for me, it's a choice. Um, I want to say that uh, another thing that's interesting I discovered is that uh, Malcolm hates it when people brag about where they went uh, to college, and, and so do I. I hate it. I, um, <clears throat> you know, and now I say that, and of course, I went to Yale University, but I'm on the record, I'm not gonna mention that this evening. I'm just not gonna get into that. Um, by the way, when I did graduate from Yale, um, or any college, it doesn't matter, uh, but when I did graduate, uh, our celebrity speaker at graduation that day was none other than Mr. Uh, Dick Cavett, who's here this evening. Where did he go? There he is. He's got a, yeah, yep, yeah. And uh, he's, 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 he, uh, and Dick also, uh, went to Yale, uh, but he, he doesn't like to brag about it either. In fact, I don't think he's ever mentioned it publicly. Have you mentioned it publicly? Twice. Twice, all right. Uh, and by the way, because I know the people on the committee who got you, the only reason we got you is because Joey Bishop was unavailable. I just want to be on the record. Um, okay, so, uh, broke our hearts, we couldn't get Bishop. Uh, okay, so, so Malcolm and I, we have all these things in common. Here's another crazy thing we have in common. We both, uh, plugged our books on Glenn Beck. Now, that's a rare thing. Not many people can say that. And of course, we both infuriated people by plugging our books on Glenn Beck. And, and it was so much fun getting all my friends angry that I was on Glenn Beck that I was thinking, you know, next time you write a book and I write a book, we should both try to get blurbs from Sarah Palin. You, you just, uh, we, I can make that happen. Um, actually, speaking of Dick Cavett, you're fired. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of Dick Cavett, Dick Cavett once famously said that uh, Sarah Palin is the only person he knows of who has no first language. <laughs> and that's typically, Cavett is, uh, he's always clever, but it's kind of mean-spirited, I have to tell you. It's just wrong. You shouldn't say that about a woman. Um, anyway, another thing I discovered about Malcolm, this is pretty incredible. Uh, he, he was a middle distance uh, champion, a 14-year-old uh, running champion. He won the 1,500-meter race uh, in all of Ontario high schoolers, got the gold medal at age 14. Uh, and actually, uh, I don't have anything like that in common with you, but Dick Cavett was the Nebraska State gymnastics champion in high school. That's true. You think it's a joke? <laughs> Look, I'll bring, we'll get a pommel horse up here right now from the basement. <laughs> Um, so, but you know, when I discovered that about Malcolm, uh, you know, he's famous for these uh, out-of-the-box insights, and, and I've got a very inside-the-box insight for you. Uh, 
people who are that genetically gifted, who have incredible minds, like you and Dick, and incredible athletic abilities, are widely hated. <laughs> yeah, we hate you. So I, I want to tell you right now, there's a lot of hostility in this room directed at you. Uh, people who are, they're not just ticked at you, they're ticked at God for making them losers. And, <clears throat> and if I were you, I'd give them a wide berth this evening. Because uh, you two golden boys are up uh, for, due for a comeuppance, I think. Um, all right, uh, let's see, what else? I tried to go into advertising. No, you tried to go into advertising and failed. I went into advertising and also failed. Uh, I did a commercial for Xlax, that's true. Um, anyway, I think the wonderful uh, similarities must end there because you are a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine and I am not. Um, so what if the magazine is past its heyday? It's still the New Yorker. Every, everybody knows Tina Brown wrecked it. So what, we've gotta move on. Um, but of course, since 1996, he's been writing wonderful pieces for The New Yorker, uh, and uh, perhaps you know him as the super best-selling author of The Tipping Point, uh, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and now David and Goliath, and I can't believe you ripped off scripture for your title. You're gonna, <laughs> God's gonna deal with you on that. Um, but really, I think you know, I'm just tickled to death that uh, Malcolm Gladwell is here. So how about a Socrates in the City welcome for our guest, Malcolm Gladwell, please. That wasn't so bad. Thank you. Um, when I emailed you, I, I asked if there was anything, you know, any areas where you didn't want me to ask questions because I didn't want this to be a kind of a painful. Uh, or more painful than it already is, kind of interview for you, for you. And you very judiciously said open season, I think, right? Yeah. Do you ever send emails that are more than like nine words? Let me ask you that up front. No. No. Uh-oh, this is going to be tough. Dick, help me. Uh, so, but, but that was, no, I just thought that was interesting because I think it's more, it, it is fun when you can sort of talk about anything. So I just, you said I could ask you anything. So I'm just going to ask you, to start out, just a, a bunch of questions, like quick questions, because uh, you said anything. Okay, what is my daughter's middle name? <laughs> uh, too obscure? Okay. Uh, what is Dick Cavett's middle name? No. Aren't, isn't he ashamed? My goodness. It's Alva? Yeah. Okay. We're, we're gonna, okay, we're, we're, they're going to get easier. What, what's the capital of North Dakota? That, that, that's, uh, um, I think I know. What's that? You, sure, you know it's Bismarck. That's right. It's it's not Bismarck. No, it is. It is. It is. It is Bismarck. Uh, okay. Uh, my goodness. Do you use conditioner? <laughs> this is just silly. Uh, all right. This is this is the this is the final this is the final question along these lines. Are you now? Or have you ever been a member of the American Communist Party? <laughs> no. Well, I think we're done. We're done. That, that, those are the questions I had. Um, no, my goodness. Well, I mean, obviously, we want to talk about your tremendous book, David and Goliath. But I, I wanted to ask you, I'm assuming uh, others wanted to know a little bit about yourself. And my first question along those lines is, when you were a kid, did you ever think, first of all, did you think you might be a writer, but did you ever think you'd 
write these kinds of books? Was, was this an ambition for you at any point, or at what point did you think you would write the kinds of things that you write? Uh, I don't think I had any ambition. Well, I'm not someone who ever thinks about the future, so uh, I don't think I was ever that uh, concerned as a child about what I would be when I grew up. Um, and I wasn't even in college. I only really have any clear sense of what I was going to do. And I, uh, and I, and then when I started writing, which was sort of an accident, I. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I I've told the story so many times, but. Oh, I, we're sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you, don't no just, to, you don't have to tell I the whole that story. I say that apology to those who've heard it before. Oh, um, oh that was very nice. The, uh, I couldn't get a job after graduating, and then a friend of mine uh, showed me an ad in the back of a magazine that I'd never heard of for an assistant managing editor. And so I wrote off saying I was interested in applying, and I got a big application, like a five-page application back, and it had one of the main questions was, it was called the magazine was called The American Spectator. It still exists. Why do you want to work for The American Spectator? was one of the big questions with two pages of space to answer. And I had <laughs> never heard of it. Um, so I, and I was sort of a smart ass then. Um, and so I simply wrote, doesn't everyone want to write for The American Spectator? <laughs> and, I, and I was done, mailed it off. And, that is, that's brilliant. And I, that's of course, very good. I got the job. Um, <laughs> So that was sort of my beginning of my um Since you got here. the job, obviously not everyone wanted to write for the American Spectator. <laughs> that's right. <clears throat> that's amazing. Yeah. How long were you there? Well, I was fired after about four months. Um, were you politically conservative at the time? Well, I was in the sense that I, Canada in the early 80s uh, and late 70s was a, uh, you know, essentially a socialist country. And so if you were politically minded at all, and a rebellious teenager, there was no room to rebel on the left. So typically, <laughs> so I had a brief... We're, we're, a brief get, we're, getting, we're getting the idea here, I guess, to some extent. So I was, uh, so I, as a way of kind of, um, and my mother had foreclosed all forms of rebellion by refusing to disapprove of anything that I did. So where where can I where can I get a mother like that? So it was that's I was sort that's of boxed, amazing. I was boxed in first by my country and secondly by my mother. Um, but but was, hang on a second. That's an extraordinary thing. How is it that your mother refused to uh, disapprove of anything you did? When I decided in uh, high school that I didn't want to go to high school anymore, my mother's response was to write me a series of notes excusing me from class with no date, with date blank. She just sort of handed it to me. And then when the notes ran out, she simply called the principal and informed him that I would, you know, be attending high school at my discretion. Um, so you were, I, I assume really, you were 16 or, or older at that point. It's really, she's a genius in retrospect. It's called reverse psychology? It's called it? reverse psychology. And my best friend, he, he and I um, both embarked on this. And of course, what we, because you couldn't, if your mother's, his mother also lined up with my mother firmly in favor of, of truancy. And so we were so kind of flummoxed by this that our only ra the only response we could do was to be the best possible students within the framework of 
not attending school. So what, what framework would that be? So here was the framework that we came up with that we decided, we were quite competitive, that we would compete not on the basis of our average, our grades, but of our grades uh, times our absences. So we had a, we created a kind of score. So you could, there were two metrics that you could use to be a great student. So you had to maximize both. So you had to be. You're really sounding like Malcolm Gladwell right now. Yeah. <laughs> you it's okay. It's okay. So, yeah, no, I had. Because you, you are. I think I had something like 70 in my final year of high school, something like 75 or 80 absent days. And I got like a 90 average. So 75 times 90, whatever that is, that was my score. And uh, I narrowly beat out my friend Terry. Um, did, it, did it crush him? Where's Terry today? Terry is uh, the, uh, he's a uh, tenured professor of political science at Harvard. <laughs> so it worked out well so, for both of us. So it sounds like the answer would be yes. Uh, that's yeah. extraordinary, but I mean, listen, reverse psychology, if your kid's a freaking genius, uh, then no, I don't think that we were, might work. We were, no, I think this is actually, we were genuinely in a box. I mean, because it was, we were interested only in a, in a uh, it wasn't that we were brilliant, it's that we were interested in, it had to be an interesting kind of rebellion, otherwise what was the point? I think that was what, and what our mothers were doing were kind of, they sort of understood that was what right, was going but that, on. Right, but that's a rebellion you can work with as a parent, I would yeah. think. Yeah. If the kid no, just wants we to like... were constructively yeah. uh, negligent in our... Yeah, I mean, if you um, just yeah. want to like hang out behind the stop and shop and smoke weed, that would not be a good thing to approve of. But that's extraordinary. So, um, my goodness. But you're, um, if I got this right, you're... you're Parents are professors, or your father was a math professor. I, my mother is a was a writer and a therapist, and my father uh, is a math professor. Yeah. Okay. So it was a yeah. I, I I'm beginning to understand this a little bit now, but that's amazing. So you didn't really want. How did you end up going to college at all then? Well, you know, Americans have difficulty with this. Uh, whenever I tell them, I actually never graduated from high school. Um, but at the time in Canada, if you understand, Canada in the late 70s, early 80s, was the kind of society where it, not only did that not matter, but it never occurred to anyone that it might matter. <laughs> it's a kind of, gold, I mean, it no longer exists, but it was a kind of golden era where it would be like, all right, so, you know, the, the college admission staff worked with that fact and let me in ultimately. <laughs> right. And what um, did you major in in college? I, uh, well, I wasn't a very serious student. I, uh, so I took a lot of courses in just Canadian history and English history, mostly. Mm -hmm. um, I was too, uh, uh, I made the mistake that people often make in college, which is I confused, and it's a, actually it's a sort of very male mistake. I confused what I was interested in with what I was good at. Um, and in retrospect, I would have, turns out that most of the things that I was truly interested in learning in college were not things that I could get good grades in. What I really wanted to do was to study statistics. That would have been the single most useful thing I could have done in college. And I didn't do it because I correctly uh, felt I would do poorly in stats class. Um, but it struck me as very, there's something, there's something weirdly uh, paradoxical about college that it prevents you 
that it, it, the college is structured, actually, to force you to make that mistake, isn't it? Um, and I don't, know, I don't know how you get around that problem, but, um, but if I was to redo college, I would have taken a wholly different set of things. I would have studied things that I wouldn't study when I wasn't in college, right? Because what did I do when I stopped going to college? Well, I continued to read lots and lots of books about things like history. In other words, it was redundant to take history in college. I was going to read history my whole life. What I should have taken was, am I going to read books on stats now? No, I'm not. I mean, that would have been an incredibly useful thing to, um, anyway. Well, I often say that I think at this point in the culture, college is overrated. <clears throat> I, I should agree with that. I, I, I mean, think, I've uh, written endlessly on this subject, so yeah. Really? Then I won't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I do. Okay, so, so what happens after college? How do you get from college to the New Yorker? We're talking about a decade or so. Will I go? Uh, so I get fired from this job, and then I'm... And now, why did you get fired from The Spectator? Because, a number of reasons. Um, one, <laughs> it was in Bloomington, Indiana, and for a boy from Canada, rural Canada, Bloomington, Indiana, southern Indiana, is something of a culture shock. Um, so there was that. Uh, and then also, I had configured my... This is the real reason. I configured my hours in college such that I was uh, going to bed at, say, 5 a.m. and waking up at 1 in the morning, 1 in the afternoon, um, for a number of reasons. And then I, I couldn't make the transition. When I, when I, and so there was something, and I was at that age, you know, where there's a, there's a kind of moment of, there's a special kind of outrage that you have at the age of 20 and 21 that you never have at any other point in your life, where you feel when someone is trying to impose their will on you that it's, it's really tyranny. And so there I was in a job where it was expected that I was to show up at nine, and I really felt that was the last straw. <laughs> and so did they, actually. Um, so yeah, I was fired, and then I went uh, to Washington. Why did you because go Because I had friends there, and I felt it was mm -hmm. premature to go back to Canada. But then uh, I was, of course, illegal, right? Because I'd lost of my course. visa. Of <clears> course. <throat> well, I had a work permit, which was right. no longer valid because my <clears throat> job had ended. And You're so the I, kind of illegal guy we're looking for, you see. <laughs> yes. We need a few more, no, you know. No, this is the great uh, thing. This is the great thing about pre-9-11 America. <clears throat> so I would go back and forth, and I had made a kind of pact with myself that I would never lie at the border. So I eventually... You would and never I had, lie or tell a lie. Yeah, I would never tell a lie. So what, I, what would happen is that my, I would have my father, who looks very distinguished and has that English accent, which all Americans just melt in the face of. So he would, we would get in the family Volvo, and he would just drive me across the border. And no one would stop him, right, because they would roll down the window, and he would say, hello. And they would just think, you know. So... But then I traveled across the border once by myself, and I got nailed, and I got, and I had another job in Washington, D.C., and they told, they told me, it's my favorite story, they said to me, uh, they're, we're going to deport you. And what that means is they, you know, they turn you around at the airport, and they put you on a plane back to your home country. Now, I had a job and an apartment and a whole life in Washington, D.C. at that point. So I bargained with the guy at the border. I was like, look, I have... Apartment, and I got to get rid of it. I got to quit my job. I have a doctor's appointment. Wait, now appointment. I'm confused. You, you, you're living in D.C. and you're driving. No, no, I'm flying. It was a, I had, was coming back from Jamaica, and I was flying into Washington Reagan Airport, 
and I get busted at immigration. At Reagan Airport. Yeah. Oh, it's not called Reagan. But Washington time, National. Washington National. So I get busted, and he's about to deport me, but I talk him into letting me stay for four more days. So I go home, and I get rid of all my stuff and quit my job, and I go, I report at INS as I'm supposed to, Thursday at 9 o'clock in the morning. I wait for hours, and finally Nine. I get ushered into the room. And there's a guy there, and there's a big pile of papers, and he starts rustling through the papers, looks at me, rustles, rustles, leaves the room, comes back with more papers, rustles, rustles. Finally, after about 45 minutes, he looks at me and he goes, I have no idea who you are or why you're here, but I've lost your file. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and so whenever people complain about the, uh, the uh, inefficiency of government bureaucracies, I always point out that there are some unexpected upsides yes. to that. <laughs> yeah. There may come a time in your life where you might want to slip through the cracks. Um, All of which is making me wonder, are you legal now? No, I am. So then I won the lottery. Pardon I, me? There was, a, oh, the, there the, was lottery the INS existed, lottery, yeah. famously, and I won. Um, but I entered the one where you could enter any number of... Like, in the beginning, the first lottery, you could enter as many times as you wanted, which is, like, so fantastic. I mean, they, they, took, they stopped doing that after a while. Um, but in that one, so... I sort of thought about it and realized, well, I should enter, I don't know, a thousand times, right? So I entered, well, I think I entered a thousand times. What did it take to enter? Did you have to fill you forms to out? You mail in separate letters. So that's a thousand <laughs> times whatever a stamp was back then. So 25 cents. So that's uh, $250 in postage, which seemed to be reasonable. Yeah. I mean, I would have entered 10,000 times if I'd had the the wit to do that. And but the saliva I, for those stamps. For those stamps. Um, and so I, not surprisingly, won. I That's mean, amazing. And then, uh, so that, so now I'm legal. It's very exciting. <laughs> wow. Um, so where were we? You had a job. Uh, you were oh, in yeah, Washington so I, with friends. Yeah, so then I had a series of jobs, and then I had a roommate who was an intern for the New York, for the New Republic. And his name is Jacob Weisberg. He's still my best friend. And Jacob uh, got me writing for the New Republic. And then that's what got me started on mm -hmm. the whole. Um, and did you, when you first began writing, did you gravitate towards the kinds of things that you're writing now? I mean, were, were you, does your mind just work that way? No, I was writing about, uh, I can't remember what I wrote about. For the, I wrote some pieces for the American Spectator when I was there. Uh, I wrote a long piece about Chuck Colson, um, who I always kind of admired. Uh, he, he has been uh, right here speaking, oh, I yeah. guess, once uh, from a podium. And, um, yeah, I worked for him for some time. Did you really? Yes, I did. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a long piece on Chuck Colson way back when, Dick, when I was Dick like... Dick Cavett still hates him, so be careful. <laughs> but, um, um, no, he was... He was uh, <laughs> no, C Colson was um, I, I, really, uh, to me, he's sort of proof of God, because he changed so dramatically. Yeah. I mean, what happened, you know, in 74, uh, whatever it was, is so dramatic, so it's extraordinary. So uh, yeah. I've admired him as well. Yeah. So, um, but sorry, so you wrote a piece on Colson in, well, this is about, in the 80s or the 90s? In the 80s. It was all about Chuck Colson, uh, who was, uh, as you know, who was profoundly suspicious of 
the idea that evangelicals should get directly involved in politics. And so and this was at a moment when the fundamentalist movement was, you know, in, under, uh, under the kind of um, uh, spearheaded by Jerry Falwell was, was very directly getting involved in politics. And so it was about that argument that right. Colson was having with the fundamentalists. Um, which I thought was a really interesting argument. Mm. Um, so I did write some stuff, but I hadn't, um, it wasn't of the sort of things I do now, I don't think. It was much more, I was much more interested in politics back then. Um, I'm not anymore, so. Do you have, before I leap into David and Goliath, do, do, do you have ambitions to write uh, different kinds of books, or is this something that you feel, is it a genre, if it is even a genre, that you feel you've settled on, that you, you want to write yeah, many I'd books? I'd love to write different kinds of books. I would like to write books. My great uh, journalistic hero is uh, Michael Lewis. And I have, I very self-consciously try to be more Michael Lewis-like. Um, but if you're a writer, you know that you can't actually be Michael Lewis because he is, the degree of difficulty in what he does is just off the charts. So you can only be kind of a partial Michael Lewis. But I would love to write a single narrative like he does. Um, I don't know whether I'm good enough to do that, but... I would love to try that. Have a book that's about one thing, or one person, or one story, as opposed to twenty stories. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really, you know, this is a guy. Uh, yeah, his, his books are, are are insanely difficult to do. Um, well, may, maybe for you, and it would be difficult for him to do what you do. I, I don't know I'm that. Not convinced. I mean, okay. I don't think. I think he could do what I do much more easily than the reverse. So he's better than you in every way. I actually think so, yes. yes. All right. How do you think he's at the half mile? Um, <laughs> he might. Well, anyway, I want to talk about your book, David and Goliath, because we've got to move some product tonight. Um, and uh, it is, uh, it's a wonderful book. How did you hit upon writing it? What was the spark or the story that moved you toward writing it? Well, there were many things. I mean, I had sort of been thinking a lot about, uh, in the, my last book, Outliers, I was very struck by, there's, there's one kind of, um, uh, there was a chapter in Outliers about uh, Jewish lawyers. How was it that uh, a group of people who were not just marginalized uh, socially in New York, but also marginalized within their profession, actively discriminated against, went from being on the absolute outside of the profession to the top of the profession in the space of a generation, right? So that was that chapter. And so I went to see all of these, all these men in their 70s who were the Jewish lawyers in New York and had them tell me their stories. And their stories were all the same in this really interesting way. Um, and I never properly resolved one aspect of their stories, which was the... Th all the things that led to their ultimate success were things that at the time would have been considered to be disadvantages. So it was because they were locked out of the white shoe firms and forced to go into the then marginal and disreputable field of M&A law that they rose to the top of the profession. Because when M&A became the big deal, they were the ones who had all the expertise. And they were the ones who weren't shackled to these um, unwieldy, um, uh, white shoe firms. Um, and it was because they were socially marginalized that they were, um, in a sense, they found it uh, acceptable to, do, to practice 
to spend 15 or 20 years practicing a kind of law that everyone else looked down their noses at, right? Um, so their marginalization was um, the reason for their success. It, they didn't succeed despite their discrimination. They succeeded because of their mm -hmm. discrimination, right? Really interesting point, which sort of just dangles in outliers, and I don't deal with it. And so I, that, I, 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 that idea sort of kept at... Um, and I was reading, I didn't put any of this in the book, but there's all of this, turns out there's all this really, really fascinating anthropology on this very notion of uh, that in certain contexts, being an outsider is, and being marginalized is hugely advantageous. So a, a, a very simple example of, that, of this is, why are, uh, why are grocery stores in inner city neighborhoods almost always uh, run by, uh, by, by, by cultural uh, ethnic groups who are not of the community, right? Why is it a Korean grocery store in Harlem, right? Or, uh, uh, and the answer is that uh, the only way to run a, a uh, grocery store in Harlem is, or in a disadvantaged neighborhood is if you're an outsider because you're the only one who can actually be you have to be a jerk to run a successful bodega in a low-income neighborhood. Why? Because your margin is that thin. And if someone steals something or someone doesn't pay up on the credit they owe you, you go out of business. So you have to be able to scream at the kid who's trying to steal a candy bar and make sure he doesn't come back. Now, if you're a member of that community, you can't scream at the kid. Why? Because the kid's parent goes to your church and it's a social problem. If it's just you and your wife and your son running the store, you can scream at the kid, right? So it's this incredible, and you see that pattern, by the way, all around the world, ethnic Chinese in the Philippines, and you can go on tons of examples of this. It's this weirdly paradoxical thing that, uh, so being on, and you see that with, of course, the Jews in commerce in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, I, I do. <laughs> Well, the same, yes, the same yeah. thing happens, yeah. right? By virtue of being denied access to certain <clears throat> sure. and being outside. Anyway, so that, that idea was just incredibly interesting to me. And I wondered whether you could think about it, not just in the context of ethnic relations, but also what if it was true about disabilities? What if it was true about personal tragedy? What, it was, what if there was tons of ways in which um, you could reconceive of certain kinds of disadvantages as advantageous? So when you get an idea like that, do you begin actively looking for examples of it? I mean, I'm thinking of the Impressionists when you talk about that. It's very similar to what you were saying about the yeah. Jewish lawyers. But, I mean, do these things uh, just find their way to you, or do you actively look for them? Well, you start to, you know, you start to uh, collect stuff. Um, and uh, it's, you know, after a while, you get into graduate student mode, and you, you make every... Uh, fact and experience of your life conform to the dominant theory floating around in your head. Um, <laughs> uh, so you, and it turns out once you can make that mental transition, it's incredibly easy, right? Really? Um, Everything proves your point. It's that great uh, Yiddish expression, uh, to the worm in horseradish, the world is horseradish. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite Yiddishisms. <laughs> yes. That's extraordinary. Uh, 
Isn't that a totally great saying, by the way? It, so it, it is, but I'd like to hear it in Yiddish. I'll bet it's funny in <laughs> Yiddish. Right. Or at least in a Yiddish accent. Yeah. If Joey Bishop were here. Um, all right, well, so I love the idea that you begin David and Goliath with the actual story of David and Goliath, because not only because it's the or text for what you're talking about. It's the ultimate uh, uh, reference when you're talking about, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I, I like the idea that uh, you, you, you really dig into it. You don't just take it as a parable. Now, mm -hmm. do you, it, it seems to me that you, uh, you know, believe that David and Goliath actually existed and that this happened historically, which, I mean, I think most serious biblical scholars would agree with that. Mm -hmm. But... Um, did you, in, in, in doing your research uh, on that, did you start out with that point of view or did you come to the conclusion that this actually happened? Uh, no, I mean, I always took it for granted that it or some version of it happened, um, which I think is a reasonable assumption to make. Mm. Um, uh, and then, and the story, the story had always bothered me because the, the kind of, um, I've always, I'd always thought that the, the, the kind of um, immediate interpretation of that story, particularly if you were, a, if you are a Christian, is weird. Why would Christians insist on calling David an underdog when he is filled with the Spirit of the Lord? That always struck me as for the longest time I thought that was weird, even when I was much younger. So he ought to be the minute he has. His heart is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. He's the favorite, surely. Right? Yeah. I mean, why would you discount the value of your own faith in interpreting stories? Well, I mean, I, don't, I, I think that's just part of the story, right? In other words, no, the idea is that he's an underdog, but because he has such courage and such faith, he's able to overcome but his underdog status. But the but doesn't belong there. That's the problem. The There's what? no but. The, but. the but doesn't belong there. The but is the mistake. Oh, <laughs> yes. That's what I was going to say. It's that he... Uh. <laughs> It is that he appears, um, it is that the, what the biblical story is saying is that uh, everything about the appearances, of the, the, everything on the surface, everything about that story that, um, uh, uh, that presents to your eye at first is wrong, right? It's the ultimate contrarian story. It says, if you were to look at these two figures, going into combat, your first thought was, oh, the giant's going to win. But then in Samuel, it says very explicitly, you know, don't make the mistake of looking at people according at, from their, at their exterior, at their size and their armor. You know, do as God does and look on the heart, right? We're told, don't ignore everything but the heart. Um, and that's a kind of, um, that suggests to me that that story, in, its, in the way that it's entered our popular culture um, has, uh, has a kind of um, uh, inappropriate twist put on it. Right, and but that's that's, in a way that's a secularization of the story, yeah, isn't it? it? A secular... or, or a popularization of but the then, story. But then when I sort of dug into it and you start reading all the scholarly literature, you find out more and more things which back up my interpretation, or not my interpretation, but the interpretation I'm putting forward, which is, you know, that stuff I say in the, Opening chapter, the sling in David's hand is not, is an incredibly devastating weapon. It's about as devastating a weapon as exists in those times. The rock leaving his sling has stopping power equal to a bullet from a 45 caliber handgun. It's a, and then Goliath, you know, 
there's a strong suspicion he has acromegaly. He has a tumor in his pituitary gland. He, that's why he's so big, but that's also the side effect of acromegaly is, um, is a whole series of things, among them severe problems with vision. And if you read the text of the story of David and Goliath, it's, he begins, if you really, with that in mind, that he's a guy suffering from a medical condition which restricts his vision, the story suddenly makes sense. You're, you're making us feel sorry for Goliath, which is, <laughs> actually, which is so weird, I can't tell you. I feel, uh, a, I feel It's like that. feeling sorry for Apollo Creed. Uh, because Rocky, had, he had the eye of the tiger. I do feel and, sorry for And Apollo did not have the eye of the tiger. Um, well, let me say, uh, but, but on the surface, in other words, the surface reading, the most basic reading of the story, everyone is afraid to fight Goliath, obviously. I mean, it yeah. says in the text that people are, are shivering and shuddering and they're, they're afraid to fight him. So clearly he was a formidable opponent, you know, not some uh, half-blind, well, lumbering, like uh, no, no, if you are, if you're going to, so he's, he, uh, he would be, by virtue of his size, so if we understand him as having acromegaly, pe people with acromegaly uh, in human history, giants, people who are, you know, this much bigger than the norm, um, very often have this medical condition. Yeah. Um, it's a, quite a common thing when you look at someone who's, so if, if Goliath was whatever he was, seven foot something, uh, chances are he probably did have this. Now, so he would, A, both, he would appear extraordinarily intimidating, and in a combat, close combat, where all he was doing, all he had to do was swing a sword at you, he's gonna win, and he would be a really, really ferocious warrior. Um, in any other kind of combat, he would be at severe disadvantage. Um, and that's, uh, uh, that's the sort of crucial, so, so long as people were trapped within the, uh, the assumption that, they had to fight Goliath in a sword fight, yeah. then they were correct that it was foolishness to go up against him. And why, I mean, it, so why do you think that uh, everyone did think that they had to fight him in a sword fight? What was it about David that allowed him to think outside of the box? Uh, because, well, as David um, uh, proves to us over the balance of his life, um, he is a man who goes his own way, isn't he? I mean. Not are, are you thinking of the Abishag incident? <laughs> I'm thinking of any number of incidents. <laughs> yeah, very odd. He's not someone who is, um, and I sort of get into the, this in the book with the idea of disagreeableness. David is deeply disagreeable in the way that that term is used by psychologists, which is that he is uh, not someone who is uh, motivated by a desire to follow social convention. And he shares that trait with innovators of all kinds, right? And I have that whole chapter on entrepreneurs talking about the importance of disagreeableness. So everyone else is being very, dis uh, very agreeable. The convention is, going back hundreds of years, is that we settle um, intractable conflicts between two armies by virtue of, by means of two men engaged in hand-to-hand in -hand combat. David is uninterested in following any kind of convention. Why? Because he's not someone who is bound by conventions or is interested in or is particularly concerned about the social cost to his reputation by violating these kinds of rules, right? And so that's what, and that is a very, uh, that is a, a central characteristic of, of successful underdogs, that they, by virtue of either their own um, personal psychology 
or the psychology of their group, they are outside these kinds of conventions, and that gives them incredible freedom. Um, that's what that, that story is telling us about that kind of freedom that comes from, from liberating yourself from, uh, from convention. I mean, it almost reminds me of Br'er Rabbit or something like that, that, you know, you realize that Br'er Rabbit is smarter th than everybody else, but he's sort of presented as the underdog, but he's not exactly the underdog. Yeah. Or Bugs Bunny. Um, yeah. uh, there's, there's something there about that, in, in that story. Um, well, I, you know, I, as you know, I come back to Br'er Rabbit in the book as well. Um, though you're right, those stories are the trickster hero, of which Br'er Rabbit is, the, is a wonderful example, is uh, someone um, who substitutes uh, deception and, uh, and trickery uh, for material advantage. Um, and, you know, that's, uh, that's a pretty powerful substitution. Um, when you, in the book you say that you thought Goliath was something like six foot nine. Now, the actual text, you're denying that? Uh, the actual text... No, 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 no. no. I mean, I... Uh, uh, no, but the, the actual text says he's s something closer to nine feet, right? And is that in inconceivable to you that that might have been the case, uh, that he was actually that tall? I mean, we've had people that have been that tall. I've always wondered why. I mean, if it said he was 14 feet tall, then you know you can't take it literally. But yeah. it seems that you can take it literally the way it's, it's I thought stated. There was, I got that number. There is a sort of, you know, as you can imagine, an enormous amount of scholarship on this very particular question of how tall he was. And there is, there is a group of scholars who think he's much closer to 6'9", but I can't remember the... Yeah, um, yeah it's a number of, it's some cubits, but uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. he was big. He was um, big. Uh, in, in, um, in David and Goliath, you also talk about the idea of, I mean, again, counterintuitive, the idea of making, uh, making something more difficult can actually make it easier. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember this? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, uh, it, talk, talk a little bit about that, because that was, that was really interesting to me. Yeah, this is, so this is this idea uh, called desirable difficulty, which um, is something that's been developed around learning theory, um, particularly by these psychologists at UCLA called the Bjorks. Um, and they've, they started with very, very basic questions about, you know, basically about how to do your homework. Um, and they have pointed out all of these apparent paradoxes that normally we would consider that if you're trying to learn something, to the extent that I can make the acquisition of that knowledge as smooth as possible, I will um, make your task of learning, or you'll make your performance on that task better. Um, so if I, it makes sense that if your kid's gonna study calculus, they should study calculus in a book that is as clearly written as possible, right? That's common sense. But the Bjorks say there's all kinds of instances where that's not true. Um, so for example, suppose your child is studying for three exams. Typically what they'll do is they'll do a big chunk on the first subject until they feel they've mastered it, move on to the second one, then move on to the third one, right? That you wanna you don't want to skip around because that's harder because if you skip around, then each time you go back to the one, you've got to refresh your memory on what you've... And they're like, no, 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 you want to skip around. In fact, what you want to do is work on one for 10 minutes, one for 10 minutes, one for 10 minutes, and go back. Now you say, well, that's crazy because you have to, you know, 
get yourself back up to speed and get all the English out of your head and the geography out of your head and get focused again on calculus. And they say, exactly. You want your kid to go through that sort of painful process of getting rid of the English and getting rid of the history and focusing again on the calculus because that's where the learning takes place, right? That's forcing them to actually focus, get rid of that stuff, go back, immerse myself, and then pull myself away after 10 minutes and immerse in English and pull myself. I've made it harder, but it's going to stick way better as a result. And they have numerous examples of this principle in action. It was, I mean, when, when I read that part of the book, you were talking about, um, uh, I can't remember the specifics, but basically that a problem was printed really clearly. Uh, and then uh, in another case, it was printed in sort of 10% gray with a weird typeface. So it was much harder to read. And for some reason, obviously, if you, you would think that that would be harder to get, but it was just the opposite because it forced people to, yeah. to really... If I print um, out... If I am giving you a series of brain teasers and I have print the brain teasers in really small, faint, fuzzy font, you will do better on them, more likely to answer them correctly than if I print them in large, clear font. Why? Because that forcing you to like squint in and read it three times because you can't follow it actually is what you want. You want someone, you want to engage their full attention and you're, what you're doing by making it in terrible font is, is in effect, um, uh, uh, luring them yeah. into engaging appropriately. The, the only uh, thing that struck me that I, where I've experienced this is that when I read scripture, it is so familiar, I get bored. So uh, it's hard for me to read. But if I read it in a foreign language that I, that I know, yeah. it slows me down so much that, you... that it forces me to, in a way, appreciate it. It's like you see it for the first time. Whereas when I read it in English, I've seen it a million times. It's yeah. very hard to get same, my brain exactly below the, the surface. It's the same principle in, in Brazil. You know, they teach kids to play uh, soccer with a much smaller, heavier ball on smaller, sort of um, much smaller, um, it's called, uh, I think it's called, someone's going to correct me. Is it called football, F-U-T-B-O-L? Yeah. Um, and that's harder. They, you, you play on a smaller pitch with a heavier ball, and what you're doing is you're, by making the game harder at that level, you're forcing them to develop um, fundamental skills that they wouldn't otherwise if they were um, in a conventional setting. Uh, I want to le leap ahead to the part in the book where you talk about uh, crime and uh, the, the, the story in um, Brownsville here in mm -hmm. Brooklyn uh, with the woman, um, I don't remember exactly what her title was, but Joanne Jaffe was, was the name in the Jay Ripper program. Yeah. That was really moving. Uh, can you reprise that briefly? Yeah, so um, it's part of this larger puzzle of what happened in this city with crime. Um, so we have in this city, there are two iterations of our crime drop. There is the 90s iteration, 93, then starts around 93, 94 when the city has a huge, steep plunge in crime. Basically, every major city in this country goes through a similar drop, not necessarily the same magnitude, but every, crime is declining everywhere in America in the mid-'90s for a number of quite fundamental reasons, a shrinking in the size of the, of the, uh, of the late teenage population, decline in the crack trade. There's a bunch of other reasons, right? So we participate, and we lead that particular plunge. Then the, but the weird thing about New York is everyone else levels off 
or even creeps up again, and we don't. We keep falling, right? And it's that second drop that's happened over the last 10 years, which has totally thrown criminologists for a loop. No one, crime is now so low in New York that it's crazy. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's, the numbers are mind-boggling, right? I don't think people in this city appropriately appreciate just what an extraordinary, this is one of the most extraordinary uh, sociological events of the last 100 years. And let me just ask you, so you don't think most of it has to do with the so-called broken windows theory? I no longer, that's a part of it, but what's happened in the last 10 years is now so off the charts and so um, unbelievably interesting um, and unprecedented. Literally, I mean, and it, some part of it, by the way, is I'm, I don't want to sidetrack this conversation, but um, in the big debate over stop and frisk that we've been having in the city, Almost no point, it has happened every now and again, at almost no point has anyone ever stood up and said, now wait a minute, uh, there are quite literally tens of thousands of people walking around alive today in New York who would otherwise be dead. Some portion of those people are alive because of uh, programs like Stop and Frisk. That doesn't make Stop and Frisk right, it doesn't settle the question of whether, but it ought to be on the table when we have a discussion about Stop and Frisk. Right? Stop and Frisk is not an isolated discussion about civil liberties. No, it's a discussion about civil liberties in the context of a whole protocol of law enforcement procedures that have saved tens of thousands of lives, right? On a level that has never happened before in the developed world. I mean, we're talking about epic declines in crime. Anyway, that's a side thing. And we don't have Stop and Frisk in other cities. Uh, not in the same, this, this is part of a much longer, larger, conversation about how the police force in this city is a generation ahead of most big city police forces. So they're doing very, very, uh, they're doing both some quite broad measures and also some incredibly subtle and sophisticated measures. Now, this brings me to what you were talking about. One of the many subtle and sophisticated things they've been doing is, one of the, is the thing I was describing in my book, which is this woman, Joanne Jaffe, is in charge of the housing police. So she's in charge of policing all the housing projects in New York City. So really ground zero for a lot of crime, endemic crime. And she goes in and observes really, really high rates of uh, muggings year in, year out, among uh, being done by teenagers, right? Uh, and everything has been tried and nothing's worked. And so what she does is she goes in and she devises this two-pronged plan. Prong number one is she ramps up deterrence to a level that using every trick in the book. So, for example, although she didn't really get into this, and I didn't go in, I only jump over in the book. They hack into the Facebook accounts of juvenile delinquents. Of course they do. Because once you're on their Facebook page, you can see who they're hanging out with. Right? And they construct these big social maps of... The they, cops hack oh, totally. into the Facebook me? accounts. Of course they do. Of course they do. Why I, I they? approve. <laughs> I'm just wondering, is that legal? Well, th this is totally parenthetical, but I had this conversation with someone who does social media marketing at a very high level in New York. And I raised this, and she looked at me like I was an idiot and said, you think it's that hard? Like... Like all, like her shooting it sound like everyone's doing it. I don't know why you're so surprised. Anyway, 
she basically, the first thing she does is she creates a database of anyone who, any juvenile who has committed a crime, and she starts to follow them real up close and personal. So the cops get to know them, and if they, they're at the point where if they don't show up at school, they show up, they call their house. And this and, is a small list of like 106 kids. Uh, it's longer than that, but it's, but you would be surprised in a, in a community like Brownsville or Harlem, the number of kids who are, who, are, who, are, who are driving the crime epidemic is actually quite small, right? So she does classic police deterrence in that she starts to follow. But that, she doesn't stop with that. She also realizes that people in those communities don't like the police. And because they don't like the police, the actions taken by the police to reduce crime are viewed as illegitimate. In other words, the families hate them. And she says, she realizes, if so long as the families of these juvenile delinquents hate me and my police officers, nothing we do is going to work. So she decides, you know what, I'm going to win over the families. And so she embarks on this concerted effort to become friends with the families of every juvenile delinquent on her list. And it's really hard. She starts knocking on the doors, and people slam the door in her face. They don't want to see the cop, right? And the breakthrough comes one Thanksgiving when she goes out and buys hundreds of turkeys and shows up on Thanksgiving Day in these housing, overcrowded housing projects where you know, there's two families in an apartment, knocks on the door, holding a, this is her and her, you know, she's the chief, by the way. She does it along with all of her officers, show up at the door with a turkey. And she has, she says, hi, my name is Chief Jaffe. You know, I know you hate me. I know you hate us, but I just want to say, it's Thanksgiving. I care about you and your family. Right? People start crying, hugs. And then they go back. And they go back on Christmas. And they bring toys. And then they start programs for the kids. Like all the squishy liberal things you can imagine. <laughs> and they start a basketball league. And they find, they take the juvenile delinquents. They take them out to sushi dinners and get them. Because they've never, you know, eaten sushi. And then they get them jobs. It's this crazy kind of like, Super, super, super crazy 1968 vintage left liberal Catskills <laughs> craziness, right? <laughs> combined with, combined with this super, I'm going to hack into your Facebook page, and if if you don't show up for school, I am on your doorstep in yeah. five minutes, and I have a 24-hour, you know, she has a 24-hour desk. If these kids step out of line once, she's like on it, boom. So it's like, it's like. It's like, um, it's the velvet, what's it? The velvet, velvet glove, whatever it is. The velvet, you know what I'm talking about. The velvet hammer? Velvet hammer. Um, and her argument is the first part, the deterrence, does not work until the families believe the law is on their side, right? You start by establishing the legitimacy of what you're doing, and then deterrence works. And that is such a beautiful and neglected notion in not just law enforcement, but in the way people, countries act in the world, Yeah. right? You, they think it's the other way around. They think is, I can hammer you into place and then I'll make friends with you. No, 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 no. You establish yourself as a respectful uh, party and then you are permitted to do these, those actions that, that, that restore stability and, um, and law and order. Well, when I was reading that, chapter, and then there was an, another one, um, but it just struck me that what you're talking about is the practicality 
of grace. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the idea that yes, there's, there's, there's truth and justice, uh, but then there's grace. And the mm -hmm. idea that both have to be applied. It can't be one or the other. If it's just squishy liberal policies, you're dead. Yeah. Uh, but if it's just hammering them with uh, you know, law and order, uh, and when you talk about the, the situation in Northern Ireland, the same kind of thing with the British Army, when, when you Go. do that, obviously, it, it, doesn't work. it backfires. But the yeah. idea that, I mean, I can't ever remember hearing about the two simultaneously. It's, mm. it's always kind of an either-or it is stupid just, yeah. argument. Because think about what's really interesting to me is about what she had to, she has to do something to make this program work that is very difficult for uh, not just human beings, but most specifically public officials to do, law enforcement officials to do. That is, she makes this list of all of the juvenile delinquents in Brownsville. That's where she starts. And basically she says, I am going to systematically uh, target in a positive way and do nice things for the criminal element of Brownsville. So the law-abiding kid, at the very beginning, the law-abiding kid, the kid who doesn't, you know, he isn't getting sushi dinners and job <laughs> offers, right? Now that's really hard to do. It sounds like the elder son in the in the. Uh, it is. It's yeah. Well, it is in so. The prodigal, it in is the prodigal the, son's it is story. The, prodigal son's the story. elder son who's done everything right. He's Mr. Truth and Justice. He's ticked. He doesn't like Grace because what about him? He's doing everything right. Yeah. And this Grace is getting on his That's nerves. Right. She, it's not fair. It is. She is. She is the. She goes after the prodigal sons, um, and but her argument is, ultimately, if I'm going to build a better community in this place, I don't have any choice. I have to kind of bite the bullet, do this thing which is on some level offensive um, because it's not fair. Um, you know, grace, that's the thing about grace in its, in its initial moment isn't fair. It's not fair to turn to the, the oldest son is right, right? The prodigal son should not be getting the... Uh, He's a bum. He is a bum. <laughs> but, you know, you don't get anywhere until you have the kind of courage to take that first step. Um, and now when you go into these neighborhoods, she has had, now this just brings the argument full circle. So what happened when she did this? What happened was the, there was a dec decline in crime in Brownsville on a level that would blow your mind, that you don't see in those neighborhoods. Like, you know, if you see, when they talk about crime declines in a place like Brownsville, they talk about the graph going like this. What happened when she did her program is the graph went like this. And, you talk to cops who have been on the beat for 30 years, and they'll say, That's, that doesn't happen. When did this happen chronologically? 10 years ago, five years ago? She starts to... the program uh, in the kind of mid-aughts. So it's about, she's about, oh, in the late aughts. She's about six or seven years in. So and we're calling it the aughts now? I, I, what else do you call it? No, 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 no one calls it anything because we haven't decided yet on the term. But I'd like now... <laughs> Think we can, we for can, the, the two of us, just to agree <laughs> that it is the aughts. It's, and that's A-U-G-H-T-S. Yeah. Right? So can we agree now yeah, that it's the aughts? So from, from here on in, we're all going to say, oh, but yeah. Dick has to be in. Are you in, Dick? Halfway. Oh. <laughs> you know how all right, the, two and a half. That's you good. You know how those, they have those oldie stations that say music from the 70s, the 80s? Well, they'll eventually have to say... 90s they're, and the aughts. They're not going to say, you know they're not going to say the aughts. And besides, 
what music is there in that decade? Um, <laughs> the world will end, you know, before uh, those are oldies. But um, so this happened fairly recently. So I guess my quick question, I'm sure everybody's thinking it, did we learn from this? Are people using this in other places, if it's so dramatic? Uh, Dunno. Uh, you know, uh, I, that's, I, I never asked her. I mean, it's so f new and so specific to uh, New York and so much a function of you know, Ray Kelly, our outgoing police commissioner, is a pretty remarkable guy. Uh, and there's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, here's a person, cop comes into his office and asks for cash to buy turkeys. To buy turkeys. For the criminals With of- our tax money. Our tax money. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I'm it's, sure eventually it will be practiced Well, elsewhere. I mean, I think this is maybe one of the upsides of writing about it in books like David and Goliath. Wouldn't you yeah. say? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Knock yeah. on wood. Right. Um, I don't believe in wood. Uh, but that's really, that's extraordinary. Well, you know, when you talk about that, again, it, it is grace. I mean, that's, that's all that it is. And it's startling. And there's another example where you talk about the woman, or, uh, the man whose uh, daughter's murdered. And then at, at, at some point, there's a woman whose daughter is murdered. And the different ways they deal with that, we don't have too much time, but it's, a, it's very similar. One of them says, we're going to have the three strikes uh, and you're outlaw in California, this crushing thing that says, if you, mm -hmm. you know, do this and this and this, that's it, game over, you'll never see the light of day again, and that's going to be effective. And to some extent, it is effective. But you say at some point, there's a boomerang effect, and it begins being yeah. ineffective. And then the, the other woman, maybe you can talk about the, the woman uh, struggling yeah, with the, forgiveness. I mean, because the book really, uh, it ends up being about the weapons of the spirit, which is this, not my phrase, but a phrase I love, um, which is the idea that the, so after leading in the book through all the readers, through all these examples of how disadvantages can be advantageous and about how the things that we associate with power um, are not as powerful as we imagine, where I want to end, what I want to end up is, where I want the reader to end up is in a, within an appreciation for soft power for the weapons of the spirit, the notion that determination and courage and faith and uh, perseverance are actually not just in um, our imaginations or our, um, our, in our fanciful, fanciful imagining the equal of material strength. They actually are the equal of material resources. That's the point of the story of David and Goliath. It's the point of the Bible. Um, and it's, it's something I feel like we, we are given an infinite number of opportunities in our life and in our world to learn this lesson, and we never do. Right? It's the, it's the story of everything at the end of the day. And yet we always um, want to discount those, those things. We always we have incredible trouble. Even Christians have trouble understanding how powerful their faith makes them. I mean, that's the, I end the book with the story of this little town of Huguenots in the mountains of France who take in Jews in the Second World War and basically tell the Nazis they are and say, whatever, do, it, do what you have to do, we're not gonna stop. And what's interesting to me about that story is that there are lots and lots of committed Christians in France, 
in the Second World War, but only, only a very, very small number of them take in Jews, right? Only a small number of them realize their faith gives them the strength to confront the Nazis. And that's kind of, um, there's something heartbreaking about that, right? This sort of lost, in a certain way, it's this lost opportunity um, uh, because people didn't, they had insufficient faith in the power of their own faith. Um, and that's a mistake we all make. We have insufficient faith in the power of these kinds of in seemingly intangible things. Um, I think you said on C-SPAN, I don't know where I caught you, you said that uh, as a result of writing about this, you had returned uh, to some kind of Christian faith. Or actually, it was in Sarah Pulliam Bailey, who's in the room. She wrote an article who mentioned it, but I think you said the same thing on C-SPAN, that writing about these things mm -hmm. had moved you personally. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, uh, can you say something about that? Because I was startled that... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a very religious household and community but had kind of wandered away. Um, and I think it's because I did not understand that very point that I was just making, that I didn't understand that, uh, f that uh, faith had, um, I didn't understand that it had a, um, that it carried that kind of authority, right? It, I understood it in the abstract but it was, in, but for example, you know, when I was sitting in, I, when I, there's a chapter in a book on this woman, you mentioned her, who, whose daughter is murdered by a sexual predator, essentially, and she, choose, she and her husband choose to forgive their daughters. They stand up while their daughter's body has just been discovered and she's just been buried, and they stand up and they say, whoever this guy is, uh, he needs our love, which is, to my mind, just about the most extraordinary and courageous thing I have ever heard of anyone ever saying. Um, and she says that because that's a function of her religious faith. And I don't know whether you can listen to that story and be indifferent to faith after that. Um, it's just not, it's not plausible. I mean, you, the only way you can be indifferent is if you're not listening, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I would disagree. I think that uh, it's easy. Most people would be indifferent to that. They would just shrug at it and, and walk away. Because I think a lot of times there are things that are logically very compelling, but it doesn't, the, the logic doesn't break through. Uh, yeah. I, I would actually argue that there has to be an element of grace, an element of God's revelation, because mm -hmm. facts and logic can only carry you so far. In other words, yeah. if, if it's actually challenging my whole world, um, you know, uh, I'm maybe not willing to be challenged, so I just I yeah. kind of shrug and yeah. forget about it because uh, there are a number of things like that. I mean, when I was, uh, what was that case? Maybe five years ago uh, in Amish country, these girls were killed. Oh yeah, and the forgiveness there, nickel mine, it was staggering, and I was actually uh, just stunned how the media actually did what I'm talking about. They could not, it, it, it is so earth shattering that these people wanted to live out this forgiveness when, I mean, as a father of a daughter, it's just about unthinkable. Mm -hmm. um, they did it. And I thought that this is one of the most moving news stories of, of our yeah, generation, no. that, that, that these people could forgive, publicly forgive 
the murderers of their little girls. I mean, that, that's news. That's news. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of those things, there was a couple of things, and then we moved on, you know. And, but it's, um, yeah, I guess I'm, logically, we ought to stop. We ought to be, yeah. that's got some stopping power. Um, referring to the gun, to Goliath, you know, that was a callback, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, it, it, it ought to, but, but it often doesn't. Anyway, we, we have a, a few minutes for questions. We uh, always have uh, people eagerly ask questions. We don't have a lot of time um, for questions, and you'll have to keep your questions short. In fact, Malcolm told me that he prefers true or false questions. <laughs> so we want to keep it snappy. We, we can only get to, thank you, we can only get to uh, a few. Uh, n n please, not all at once, right please. There. Where? Right here. Where? In the front row. Oh, 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 you have to, you have to go to the microphone. I'm so sorry. What is your process of writing like? Do you surround yourself with uh, three by five cards, source material? How do you approach um, a book like this? Yeah, uh, well, it's pretty disorganized. I, I don't, um, I start in the middle. I usually have an idea for one chapter or two, and I just start, and then I'm uh, hopeful that other chapters will emerge. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Um, so this one, I had no clue. I'd started just writing really in the middle. Um, and uh, I started with a chapter on Northern Ireland and spent many dismal weeks in Belfast. I don't recommend Belfast. Um, and then, and hung out, by the way, uh, it was actually incredibly interesting. This is a total detour, but... Uh, so it, I go to Belfast, because I think Belfast is really interesting, because I want to write about insurgencies. And the question is, which insurgency? And I realize if I do something that's present, then everyone's going to read about it with all of the biases that they bring to bear. And they won't actually listen to what I have to say. So it's pointless to write about Afghanistan, or Iraq, or Middle East. Um, but then you don't want to go too far back in time because it won't seem relevant and everyone will have died. <laughs> so what, what are you left with? Well, and then you also want to go a place where there's a, you know, where it's kind of fun to go. I mean, you don't want to, I'm someone who likes my creature comforts. Um, so, so you chose Belfast. So I chose Belfast. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Um, and, but it's really interesting because Belfast, the thing that's so crazy about um, uh, Northern Ireland, of course, is that they're Irish, and so you have... <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> say, say that again. So there's all kinds of... What does that mean? Well, here you have, at least among the Catholics, Protestants are a different matter, but at least among the Catholics, you have a culture that essentially is devoted to storytelling. So you go up, you show up with your tape recorder, and you say, can you tell me stories? And they're like, oh, can I tell you stories? And so, like, I just kept the tape recorder running for weeks. I mean, they went on. In fact, my favorite IRA story, I hung out with all these IRA guys. And it's sort of weird because they are so charming and they're working on a novel and they're doing this and the other thing. And then you sort of hear about why they were in Longcash for five years. And you're like, oh, dear. But um, my favorite IRA story is in the 40s, there's an IRA guy way up high in the IRA who the other IRA guys become convinced as a British informer. They, now this is all about the, the storytelling aspect of Irish culture. 
So they kidnap him, take him to a remote cottage up in the mountains, and interrogate him until he confesses. He confesses in due course. And then they say, all right, we'd like you to write out your confession. And he says, all right. He's abducted in April. In September, when he's finally rescued by the British, he's still writing his confession. <laughs> now, <laughs> this only works in the IRA. So think about it. Every day he sits down with his like fountain pen, right? Working away, draft after draft. Presumably they're reading the drafts, critiquing them, <laughs> trading stories. And at no point does it occur to anyone there's something wrong with taking five months to write your confession. But wait, he's not done. When he, I mean, it's still, it's still an ongoing work in progress, right? This is just like par for the course, right? It's fascinating. Um, wow. We, uh, <clears throat> We don't have too much time, so okay, we've got to, uh, let, we'll, we'll just try to keep it going fairly quickly. So, uh, real quick. I, That's enough. I haven't had the chance to read the book yet, uh, but I have heard you tell your version of the David and Goliath story um, on, uh, on TV. And I'm curious to know, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, that might be, because the traditional David and Goliath story is uh, there's no way he could beat him and God helped him beat him. You know, that's what we tell our kids, and so you should have faith in God. Yeah. And um, so, because that's the only thing. And you give a lot of very plausible reasons as to why he won. Very logical, very concrete, very human, very um, earthly reasons. And at the same time, a person of faith could say, well, God lined up a lot of things in order for this to happen. But do you concern yourself with people taking that story differently, taking, the, taking that very humanist perspective yeah. on, on your version of the story. Well, no, because God's not out of the story. Uh, David does this extraordinarily audacious act. He basically chooses to violate international law. The law is, of the, time, the law of the time, the convention is, it's a sword fight. And David says, I'm not going to do it, right? So where does he get the strength and the courage to defy what everyone around him takes as a, uh, as a principle of conflict resolution? And the answer is, it comes from God. And I don't think, you know, to me that's more than sufficient. Uh, and that's the audacious act. Everything else that comes after that is anticlimactic. Once someone who is skilled with a uh, sling, with a sling um, realizes that uh, this is going to, that he can use this against someone who thinks he's fighting a sword fight, the, it's a fait accompli. The, but the radical act, the, the, the act that, requ that, that requires, I think, that um, uh, the, 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 the spirit of God is, is that decision, right? the choice to do what everyone else thought was nonsense. Okay. Um, so my question is, if you would say that perceived disadvantages are actually advantageous, could you extend that to say that perceived advantages can in some instances be disadvantageous? Yes, see my chapter on why you shouldn't go to an Ivy League school. <laughs> well, I wasn't planning to. <laughs> a quick comment and then a, qu a quick comment and a question. First, I have to tell everyone what a, as we say in French, mensch you are, because back in 2005, I wrote you an email asking you how I can get my work in The New Yorker and who I could speak to. In, in 24 hours, you sent me an email back. Wow. So I have to say thank you for that, first of all. 
so thank you. Um, the question, I'm really looking forward to reading the book, and the question that I have for you is, how do you get that message out that underdogs can do it uh, to communities and to people that really need to hear it? I mean, apart from giving out your book on street corners, but how do you really get that message out to affect change within certain communities? Yeah. Well, you know, a, a book can only start a conversation. I mean, the, I always think of that's my, my role is simply to prompt people into new ways of talking and thinking and asking questions. And in the best case scenario, that conversation bubbles and mushrooms and, um, and starts to have unexpected impacts. But um, it's a very different thing. The task of, of making an argument or telling a story and of actually creating change at a community level are there's cause quite a difference, uh, quite a distance between them. Um, and I'm very aware of that. Um, uh, and it's, it's uh, of, of how many other people need to be engaged in order for something to happen as a result of an idea that I've been promoting. But Thank you. Uh, one way uh, I think it happens actually is by your doing things like this, talking about it, uh, it's sort of, uh very engaging. I know you've, you've been out there a lot doing a lot of talking, not just to sell books. I mean, it's sort of a uh, chicken or egg kind of thing, but yeah. it does, uh, yeah. it's inspiring. Yes. Uh, so I noticed that there are a lot of younger people in the crowd tonight. And so I was wondering, what is your biggest piece of advice you can give to people that are about to graduate or just graduated college? Like, what would be your biggest advice for us? Oh, wow. Don't move to Washington. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if I was, uh, <clears throat> if I was 20, one, um, I would, uh, I'd probably leave North America. Um, I think this is an, a, an incredible time. You know, when, first of all, when, if you're in a situation where the job market isn't terribly good, then there's not a lot to lose by leaving for a couple of years, A. B, the excitement's not here, right? I mean, it sort of is, but not really. The excitement is, and you know, through history, people, who got somewhere, went where the excitement was. Where is the excitement? I mean, a number of places. I mean, I would, I don't know where I would go. I might go to, uh, I might go to Sao Paulo. I might go to uh, what, what's Singapore. I might what's go exciting? To, I mean, I might go to South Africa. I know Africa. it's just sheer ignorance, to, but what is happening in Sao Paulo that is exciting? I just feel like uh, there is, the question is where are there A, opportunities writ large, but more specifically, where are there an opportunity where are there opportunities to do something interesting? And interesting includes meaningful and also something that would inspire you. And I feel like uh, the number, you know, just, I had a conversation, for example, two days ago with someone about this guy whose name I forget, this Indian guy who has uh, put, has started this hospital in India, a series of hospitals that does, he does um, uh, heart surgery, open heart surgery at a fraction of the cost. For $8,000, he will do open-heart surgery, and he has le uh, levels of complication that are equal to the Mayo Clinic. Right? So he's taken a $100,000 operation and done it for a tenth the cost. He's now opening a hospital in Cayman Islands. Basically wants to get Americans to fly down there and get their care. Totally interesting, right? So, I mean, if I was remotely interested in health, what would I do with my MD? I'd go and hang out with him. That's exciting, right? I'd show up on his doorstep and say, teach me something. He's got all kinds of interesting ideas about how to disrupt stuff. 
There's a reason that's happening in India, not here, right? Because in India, because there's so, there, the field's wide open for doing interesting things. The most interesting things about, uh, uh, about the, you know, they created this national electronic data platform in, England, in, in India. It's incredibly fascinating. Um, if I was interested in IT or in any kind of issue around, I'd go to India, hang out with that, those people and see what was, um, in the same way that people 100 years ago came here, right? Um, so now these $8,000 uh, hard operations, have they been successful? <laughs> yeah, we, no. know, we know they're cheap. No, no, his point is his quality, his levels oh, of quality, quality are equal to the Mayo okay. Clinic. Okay. So, you know, his levels of complication, yeah. his quality levels are higher than the hospitals of New York mm. City, mm. right? Um, some of the big hospitals in New York City, for example, have um, complication rates that, would, that are a little bit terrifying. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. Uh, yes, sir. Evening. You mentioned that college, in your opinion, can be overrated. Uh, what would you do to fix that? Because, I mean, I can't really go get a job. I can't just, like, Truman didn't go to college, but nobody cares about Truman anymore. So how could I, like, what should I do for college? Because I'm looking to transfer, and I don't, I mean, I know what I want to do, but I don't know where to yeah. go or what to study. Or Well, my, the argument I make in my book is that, uh, and an it's an argument that is backed up um, with a, a considerable amount of social science, is that class rank is a better predictor of success in life than institutional quality. So what the first thing you need to do is to stop thinking about uh, going to the most prestigious institution you can and start thinking about uh, which institution can you go to and excel at, right? Um, Obviously, everybody's excelling at Harvard, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, Even it's very easy to get an A. <laughs> I don't know why, but, uh, no, but we won't talk about that. The, um, yeah. Yes, in the. Uh, but in you the mean world. you don't just mean get good grades. You mean excel. You mean thrive. I mean be in the top uh, twenty percent of your class. Uh -huh. That should okay. be your. Um, uh, so this country is, of course, has the opposite approach, right? We have an obsession with institutional prestige. Why? I don't know. Um, it's just this. Um, it's the same reason why people spend ten thousand dollars for a Rolex watch. Um, it's not a rational response to a need to know the time of day. Um, but I'd, li I'd like to end on that right there. But uh, we uh, thank you. Uh, real quick, uh, just a couple more. Hi. Um, the story of David and Goliath is, of course, very intriguing to uh, most of us. And we've all experienced our own David and Goliaths in our lives. I'm wondering if you would share uh, your David and Goliath story with us and be as transparent as you want to be because you're amongst friends. <laughs> well, I, would, you know, I would run from a question like that. I, there, I, there are people in this room, they're vipers. I know them. <laughs> I've known, I wouldn't... I don't think I have one. I, you know, I, I cannot, you cannot imagine a life uh, less, um, uh, less afflicted with burdens than mine. I grew up in Canada. I mean, <laughs> first of all. Your mother let you do whatever you wanted. My mother let me do whatever my, 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 my parents loved each other dearly. My, yeah, my mother let me do whatever I wanted. My, Friends that I made when I was in first grade are still my friends. Uh, I've never had any major illness. I love my brothers. I have a nice job. How, how do you I mean, deal with the incredible resentment that we all feel <laughs> for you? That's got to set know. you back a little bit. I mean, I suppose... I don't know whether... Um, 
You know, I think it's important. If everyone claims to have overcome adversity, then we really have, um, uh, we have diminished the, uh, the, the courage and strength of those who genuinely have faced it. So, I don't, so you don't buy into the whole narrative thing. We've all got our stories. In other words, there's wanna, an element of objective truth I want, I don't to this pile idea on of adversity. Kind of diminish, yeah, I don't want uh -huh. to cheapen the value of other people's. Because right. many people have experienced real adversity. I don't, you can't be a middle-class boy from rural Canada and claim to have battled great giants. It, there, there are no giants in is, is rural Canada. Our, is Anui not a giant? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, then you the, are very blessed. I am very blessed. Yes, That's absolutely correct. Th this will have to be our last question because that person is going to be at the patron's dinner where she can ask her question. So final question, no pressure. Well, I'm just curious, because you've looked at so many successful people, and you've looked at people that have come to the starting line with disadvantages and all that. Could you pick one thing as maybe a common denominator or thread that really is in, like a predictor of success in people? Um, what can you tell us about successful people in, if you had to pick one thing? Oh, wow. Uh, well, you, you can't pick one because there are obviously so many different ways to, uh, to achieve something of, of, of value in the world. Um, so it's, but I think that, um, I was thinking about the other day that I have, uh, um, maybe is simply that there, the ability to uh, care on, some kind of deep level about what you're doing at the moment that you're doing it is about as close as I can come to answering that question. Because everything follows from that. Um, you have to be committed to the task that you're doing um, and be sort of, um, and the minute any kind of indifference or um, cynicism or um, anything creeps into that, then I think you're, you've, you've lost ground. Um, and so I would, you know, so, but that requires that we have a definition of success which says that people are successful in my book to the extent that they have, that they care about what they do. They have something, that they do something that they care about. Um, and if you can pull that off, I think you, uh, I think you've won. Um, there are plenty of books here. We uh, don't try to solve all the world's problems uh, in an hour and 20 minutes. We hope that you will buy these books, uh, take them home, think about this, talk about these things with your friends, and continue to live a thoughtful life. And let me say, uh, Malcolm, uh, how grateful we are for your being here and for your exceeding thoughtfulness, not just here, but in your books. I'm just uh, very grateful to have you. So a round of applause, I think, would be in order. Thank you.